From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to a full hour of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey hosting with, as part of three quarters of the show today, three quarters of the crew, Eric Bradlow is here, Shane Jensen is here, Adi Weiner. I see someone on the phone. Is that Adi calling in? He was down DC way, got trapped by Adi goings-ons. He might be in here. If he's not here, we'll be back with him next time. As you guys know, some combinations of us are here pretty much every week of the year, coming to you via Zoom lately. And coming to you on Tuesday afternoon, as we generally do, we have a regular show and that we're going to do open lines here in the first half. And then we have a guest segment in the second half, one of our frequent and favorite guests, Dan Trevone of Zealous Analytics, talking about really baseball and basketball, baseball here at the end of the season, basketball at the beginning, perfect guy to talk us through the confluence of those events. We, at least two of us, the guys I'm looking at are sitting in Philadelphia Shane is is in full Philly garb. Eric is like chomping at the bit to get out in his car and drive to the stadium, going to the game. Big night, game seven, NLCS, Phillies and Diamondbacks. We've already seen a game seven last night down here in Texas, Houston, Texas. The Rangers got it done. They go back to the World Series for only the third time, looking for their first win ever. I had to pull for them for that reason alone, guys. Come on. They've never gotten it done. Um, curious. Have you been consuming all this? What are you thinking? What's top of mind from this great playoff run we've been through? Yeah, I mean, honestly, some of the individual performances have just been absolutely mind blowing in this playoffs. I, I mean, you know, I, I you know, you, I mean, what Jordan Alvarez did in the ALCS is absolutely mind blowing. He, fi- he finishes his postseason with like a almost one point five OPS. Atlas uh, Garcia needs only two RBI in the World Series to break the postseason RBI record. He's already you know, two RBIs away from that. He has nine RBIs in the last six at bats. How's that for a momentum streak? <laughs> uh, incredible. And last night's get, you know, I mean, that whole series was just obviously back and forth. Kind of weird that the road team won every single one of those games. Kind of weird that the Houston's not in the World Series. You know, that they, they you know, they've started feeling inevitable the last couple of years. So, so just a couple of quick reactions also. Um, I did obviously notice the individual performances that Shane was talking about couple things. Let me talk from a statistical perspective. So one is, um, is there any reason we can't build a machine learning engine, whether it's a deep learning neural net type of approach to actually predict someone's likely playoff performance as opposed to their regular season performance? Like we build, matter of fact, I did that when I was spending time, not in baseball, with football with the Eagles. Um, we built models not only for regular season performance, but regular, uh, but uh, playoff performance of players themselves. Um, so first, is that something predictable? Like, why does Jordan Alvarez, why does Jose Altuve, why do Bryce Harper, why does they, why do these players do so well in the postseason above and beyond even their regular season performance? Is there a way to predict that? And I don't mean uh, maybe a psychological battery of items. I don't know. That was the first thing I was thinking about. The second thing I was thinking about was, you know, this postseason seems strange because the Rangers won all four games on the road. And, you know, that happened just recently. Uh, with the Nationals in 2019. Um, what was interesting, of course, about that was that Max Scherzer was the pitcher of Game 7 in that game, as well as the pitcher of Game 7 in this Game 7 as well. Um, but I just kept thinking that, first of all, we have a number 5 seed. The Rangers couldn't have been higher than 5. Were they 5 or 6? Did they play the Rays they in were, the first round? They uh, didn't win the division. Um, they were five. Yeah, they were the fifth. They were five. Okay. So we have a number five seed who's either going to play a number four seed or a number of six seeds. So Shane's comment for the last nine and a half years that baseball playoffs are a coin flip, validate again. Number two, the Astros inevitable. Well, if the Phillies make it, the Phillies and Astros would have played or not, but they would have played two years in a row. Does anybody know, any of you guys know when those same two teams have played each other two years in a row? When the last time that was, you could probably do an empirical estimate, Shane, given your coin flip model. Now you've got both teams in the coin flip model. Either way, obviously, I'll give you a hint. My team, 
Yankees yeah. and Dodgers, 1977 and 78. <laughs> okay. Back when there was still kids. only like, a, there was only like one series to get to the World Series then, right? Well, that too. But yeah. I'm just saying, forget winning that. twice in a row, which no one's done since the Yankees in 2000. Forget winning twice in a row, which hasn't been done in 24 years. Two teams playing twice in a row hasn't happened in 45 years. That's that, Shane, is, Eric, it's amazing that's the answer because, of course, that's the first place I went as a 10-year-old, and we're all kind of imprinted yeah. with our 10-year-old sports experience. It was Dodgers-Yankees multiple years, and it was like, oh, I thought this is just kind of what happened. I can't believe it hasn't happened since then. Has not happened since. And, and the other thing I think that's pretty you know, amazing is that um, – this has been a, a fascinating baseball season because there clearly there are players. And the other thing I was thinking about was there are players that have been more and less affected by the new rules, the pitch clock, et cetera, and nothing more. And this just pains me to even say his name. Craig Kimbrell has to be forced out of the major leagues, <laughs> not because of his performance. I don't mean that he can't pitch under the new pitch rules. He has this motion that he does when he plays that it's almost like he creates like a crow-like motion. I've studied this now. I've studied this. It takes him 11 seconds on average to do this crow-like motion, which means he only has nine seconds to get into position, get ready to pitch, pitch the ball. And if you notice, he has to step out, which he only is allowed a few times. He has to throw to first more often. The catcher has to step out more often. And Shane, it's not an it's, This is not a bias. I noticed this even prior to him giving up two games. The pitch clock has had a differential effect on certain players. Yeah, and I mean, the only silver lining to this whole Craig Kimbrell experience this year has been Phillies fans now get to experience kind of what I already went through. We went through cardiac Craig up in Boston in 2018, and they wanted all that year, so it all ended up fine, but he was my <laughs> least favorite part of that run back then, and it's, you know, obviously I do think He's diminished since then physically, and I agree. He's somebody that seems to – I mean, he he just blows up in big innings now, and uh, I would not – I mean, him coming out last night, I hope that's not some kind of preview like they think they might use him tonight. But Yikes. Okay, Thanks. guys, I want to talk about – I do want to talk about some of the extraordinary postseason performances that we saw. That Altuve in that Game 5 – was it ninth inning or feeling inevitable? Ninth inning, top of the ninth, top of the ninth. Going home run. home run. Okay, so just some basic numbers on Altuve. One career postseason home runs twenty six. Twenty seven now. I think he got. He launched one last night too. Okay, so it ends with twenty seven this year out of four hundred and whatever that must have been yeah. seventy five play to play Second all time Schwarber, by the way, coming in just a little bit behind him with twenty. And then in like half the batting. Yeah, let's, let's, do, let's do the math. If Schwarber was to bat 600 times at this pace in the postseason, he'd have 50 postseason home runs essentially in like a full season. And this is against the best pitchers in baseball. Well, let's not I hope he gets a lot of more too readily, in the playoffs. Here's something that really jumped out to me. The, the, the Altuve has not just 26 total home runs, but he has – what is it? Fifteen game tying or go ahead home runs in a hundred and one postseason games. So fifteen. This is the, this is top. Well, who's behind that? Your guys, Jeter, twelve game tying or game go ahead home runs in one hundred and fifty eight. Bernie Williams right behind that. So we got these Yankees up there. But what jumped out to me were a couple of the numbers lower in the order, just a little bit. Babe Ruth, ten game tying or game or go ahead out of just 41 games. So one out of four of his postseason games, he's hitting game time or go ahead home runs. But who else is in there? George Brett, nine out of 43, almost the same 25% mm-hmm. of his games. And so it's a much smaller sample size, but it's, it's just this thing that jumped off the page about George Brett, a much higher percentage um, than. No, no, well, let me ask, we, oh, go ahead, Derek. No, I was going to ask you a question, Shay, just so I remember this. So here's what I could say um, for a lot of his career. Um, Jeter had, Murderer's Row batting behind him. Ruth, of course, had Gehrig batting behind him. Um, and and um, if you look at Altuve, you know, right following him later on is uh, Jordan Alvarez and other people. So my only comment is, is that 
these people also get lots of opportunities because it's not like if you pitch, if you, if you say, well, I'm not going to pitch to Jeter. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe you're going to face Paul O'Neill. Maybe you're going to face Bernie Williams. If you're not facing Ruth, I don't know. Lou Gehrig could hit a few. So that yeah, was I mean, bad. I mean, honestly, uh, Barry Bonds' postseason, I mean, Barry Bonds' postseason totals are probably deflated by the, not making it to the postseason that many times. But when he was there, I mean, he's probably got the record by like double the intentional walks or something like that. You know, I mean, that's the kind of experience. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He has a if different you way are of kind of like yeah. on that kind of run, but not getting protected. So let me ask you a question then, guys. How would you, just quickly, how would you use these stats? Like, do you, in some sense, when thinking about pitching to Altuve up 4-2 in the ninth with two men on, is there any thought whatsoever of saying, I'm just not pitching to him. I'm going to walk him. And you know what? I will take the chance because his postseason stats, it's enough plate appearances now. It's enough at-bats. It's not a small sample. There's something about this guy in the postseason. I'd rather take the risk of some other player. I'd have yeah. to bet. Yeah, we've seen it done. Twenty thirteen, uh, David Ortiz got walked uh, like in half as that bats Barry Bonds as well. It just I think in this case the trouble is after Altuve you've got Bregman and after Bregman you've got Alvarez and all the all three of these guys are like you know raking currently in the postseason. So it's kind yeah. of you know again yeah. you, you my favorite of way, course still... my favorite of course Shane is when they walk Barry Bonds in the playoffs with the bases loaded yeah. so they didn't yeah. have to face him. I mean that's the <laughs> ultimate sign of respect or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. All right, guys, let's shift gears and talk a little football before we take a break at the bottom of the hour. Let's hit NFL briefly. Notably, Bill Belichick picked up his 300th win. He picked it up against the Bills, who I put a question mark on on the show last week, and y'all busted me before. I'm not going to take too much credit. We're all overreacting too much at this point of the season as far as I'm concerned. What else in the – well, just so he's only got whatever, something like 60 more wins to catch Don Shula. I mean, it's really – regular season wins we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. what else? I mean, it's going to have NFL. to be regular season wins if it's going to be with the Patriots. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to enjoy that. I'm going to keep enjoying that. What else from the NFL? My main thing with the NFL right now is that we're just – people are just – it's just this time of year, every year, it becomes plain that we've overreacted for the first six or seven weeks of the season. And we've written the story of 2023 before we know the actual story of 2023. These teams are not as far apart from each other as we think. And there's more variance than we think. And that means crazy things are going to happen and we shouldn't overinterpret them. And so, yeah, the Ravens crush the Lions. Does that mean the Ravens are back and the Lions aren't that? That's like, no, dampen your reaction. Just always friggin' dampen your reaction. That's my NFL take. Yeah, well, I think we're at the dangerous part of the year for overreactions because like two or three games in i think even you know we're, we're stopping ourselves we're like obviously we can't react you know, yeah. but, but now that six or seven you're like oh well yeah. you know it's uh that's right five and one sounds really impressive and five and one is definitely more impressive than most records but you know i see way too many people just slotting the chiefs like slotting us in for a a chiefs eagles rematch at this point so right. i'm going to take a different tack than you said kate and but i agree with you kate but let me just take a counterpoint just to liven up the action here a little bit so here's what I'm going to say to win in the playoffs. Let's assume at the moment, remember, I think there's seven teams that make it and you, you get a buy and one team gets a buy. Okay. So let's assume you're not a buy team. And so you have to win four games to win the Super Bowl. So this is my thought. Let's imagine that every team has some bimodal distribution of good outcomes and not good outcomes. Some days you're the best Detroit Lions you are. Some days you're not. So I see them getting blown out by the Ravens. And now I'm not going to overreact. I'm going to update my probability that the Lions have a day where they draw from the bad hump. Therefore, the probability that they're going to win four games in a row in the playoffs against quality teams goes down. Let me just finish. And therefore, it's not an overreaction. I'm just shifting my mixing proportion and say, wow, the Lions can really have a bad day. I don't see the Chiefs getting blown out 38 to 10 or whatever it was. I don't see that 31 happening. 31 to 6, what was it in the Super Bowl? Who, the Chiefs? 30. Oh, you mean to the Bucks? Yeah. Yeah, Eric, well. Is, you, you can't see that happening? It happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I can now, but not to mention it. I'm just saying, I actually put in the rundown, so I'm going to say I somewhat disagree. When I see a team get these – Big losses. 
the Dolphins getting beaten by the Eagles and the Bills by a large margin. And they've beaten the other five teams they've beaten maybe have a total of 10 wins or less. Do you, Lions, do you consider last night's game a blowout? No, no. You mean the Eagles against the Eagles? The, kind of the one I, was at, I, I was at the game. Um, no, I don't. Cons- I don't at all. It was a 14 point game, but they were driving like down until like they were driving down the field. And if Darius Slay doesn't pick that ball off, the game might be well be tied. But no, no, no. My only comment was I do tend to put weight on a team that has a blowout loss to a very good team because I'm like, well, if they can do it this game, which is a high focus game, they what's the chances? I believe it's not going to happen any game in the playoffs. That's for me. A couple of thoughts. One, I I don't think you get that much traction off of putting more weight on team in football, in NFL, I should say, on teams that, when you play better teams. I think it's almost that you can you get the same inference. The strength of inference is similar. It's unlike in basketball where matchups matter more. Probably is unlike college where the distribution of talent is more extreme. I think in football, and this is what we've seen with Massey Peabody over the years, you pretty much get the same read off of level. Wait, wait, wait. I just want to be clear about this. Approximation. That's right. I was first, I have a very specific question. So if I, I just want to be clear, because we, we study this in educational testing all the time. If I want to test whether someone's an elite student, I can't give them easy test questions to assess that. I need to give them harder ones. So if the Detroit Lions play a thousand games against the Arizona Cardinals or Carolina Panthers, I'm not sure I can say a lot about their abil- probability of being in the right tail of the distribution. And so, so I disagree. I think basically okay. you read you read the 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 point differential, and and you don't you don't we've I mean we I'm sure there's something somewhere. We were unable to find a way to weight the data differently by strength of competition, other than simply the difference. You, you beat worse teams more, and if you do, then that's roughly you know in proportion. Get the proportions right to beating a good team by. This is I, not only do I believe you. I'm saying I think that's in a really interesting finding because I my intuition would have told me just the opposite. Well, I think it is domain dependent. So I I imagine in your testing scenario, it makes a lot of sense. I think in the NBA, it makes a lot of sense. I think in college football, to some extent, I think it makes a lot of sense. But the NFL, these teams are just not as different as we think they are. Of course, there are tail cases, especially on the left tail. But I think they're just in general, not as different as we think they are. The other thing I really want to push you on, Eric, and this is a long standing. This is just the first time I've articulated it. But you, I, I resist the double hump thing, the bimodal thing. But it, mostly out of parsimony. Why do we need a double hump? We just have. Why? Why is it not just a normally distributed uh, uh, performance from the Lions, and they got a bad draw? Why does it have to be another hump over there? It's so much more parsimonious just to say it's a it's a normal distribution. Yeah, I I tend to be. This is by the way my belief in not just sports. Um, it's my belief in marketing. Maybe it's my belief in life. Um, I just always tend to believe that there's within person, within unit, within team, heterogeneity that's not explained well by a single peak distribution like a normal. I just tend to believe that, matter of fact, we tend to overweight cross-unit heterogeneity, but not not put as much information or thought into what I call within unit heterogeneity. That sometimes Eric Bradlow likes this, sometimes he really likes that. Sometimes Shane Jensen performs well. Sometimes it's the not as awake Shane Jensen. Sometimes it's the strong team. Sometimes it's the weak team. And okay, I don't so- think I think if you took a histogram of performance. I think it would look more bimodal, or at least the tails would be thicker, at least than a normal, which could be explained by a bimodal distribution. Good. I mean, I buy th- thicker tails for sure. It's certainly thicker than normal. And and it's interesting for me to hear you globalize your beliefs there, because that's helpful. You've said it enough over the years in enough different domains. It makes sense to me that it's a global belief. And it oh, could be wrong. Framework. It could be. It could be. Wrong, it's a framework. It's, well, but Eric, you could argue like Cade, you and your statistical distribution is just a blending of these things, and the actual mechanisms are heterogeneous, and that's it's possible. Now, I don't know if we get benefit; we should model it at that level of detail, but maybe it's an interesting it's an interesting possibility. Before we go any further on that, let's get to a little bit on college football before we have to go to break. And and the most interesting bit is the football, I suppose. Ohio State had a, had a big weekend. UNC finally got knocked out. USC eliminated. 
we're getting to the part of the season where teams are getting kind of scratched from consideration from the playoffs. But this thing that's going on with Michigan and the sign stealing, I just saw a video this afternoon of the Ohio State game last year where the video angle is like you're watching the quarterback turn to the sideline for the signals, and behind the quarterback on the Michigan sideline is the guy who's accused of stealing signals by nefarious means and the defensive coordinator. And you just see the quarterback turn for the for the call, gets the call, the whole sideline reacts. They start signaling into the defensive to, to the to Wolverines what's going to happen. And it's just like if a picture is worth a thousand words, I don't know what this video is worth, but it is a damning video. And the reason I'm emphasizing it is that it's so analogous to the Houston Astros in 2017. It's just unbelievably on the nose here. And it seems like it's going to have big, it I mean, like it has to have consequences. It's pretty similar to, I guess this is during games, not like, cause I guess the spy gate, the original Patriots thing was during practices that they were doing a similar well, thing. Video but tape. they're doing it. They're, it's for the games. The trouble is you can always still sign in games. That's no big deal. But if you're collecting it in person or using technology, to no, I know it, I know it's against the rules. I just, you know, it's sort of, I think it's also similar to what the Patriots were doing kind of back in the it, day. It was, that's right. That's right. Um, but here's the, you know, the, the year the Astros got busted was their world series years, their first world series. They won that year. It, it, it kind of came, it, it started emerging late that season, though it didn't really come up for, for later. And here are the Wolverines. Many people have them number one in the country. This is supposed to be the year they finally get over the hump. And my God, they're doing this thing. The, 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 the most likely consequence, it seems to me, and people are talking about it this way, is that Harbaugh pulls a Pete Carroll. And just before the NCAA starts pounding on the door, he runs out and takes that NFL job. And, you know, just never has to really pay the consequences, gets revered and lauded for the next few decades. That's well, depending on how he does in the NFL. He's... <laughs> well, that's right. But Carroll did better the second time around than the first time around. Harbaugh's already got a good track record. I'm All just right, not guys. happy that my doomsday scenario doesn't seem to be coming. It looks like everything's going to sort itself out in college football. Well, we'll see. We've still got some sorting to do. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a second half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to the second half of this week's show. This is our guest segment, second half of our most common, commonly uh, a guest segment. And indeed, we have Dan Chavone. Dan is a longtime, he's a founder of Zealous Analytics and actually and a longtime friend of the show. He's been on multiple times. He's one of the senior guys there. They're doing some of the coolest stuff. Also, Dan has a background in baseball. We're kind of at peak baseball right now. And NBA starting. They've got cool stuff going on with NBA. So we figured Dan was about as good as it could be for someone to have on today. We're always happy to have him on. Joining me for this segment are Eric Bradlow and Shane Jensen. Dan, welcome back to work. Moneyball. Thanks for having me. You are based out of Denver, Colorado. I understand how are things in Denver, Colorado this fine Tuesday afternoon? Well, things are great now. It's like 70 and sunny. We're supposed to get our first snow on uh, this weekend. So <laughs> enjoying it while lasts. Well, that's good. You want When you're living in Colorado, you want some snow. That's, that's a natural part of things. Dan, exactly. uh, before you started Zealous, with Doug Fearing and Luke Bourne, you were working in baseball. You worked at, I believe you're head of research there for the Dodgers. They're an esteemed organization famous for putting together a heck of a stats group there. So you've got a background in baseball. Of course, Dan is a Harvard stats PhD. So it's a rare combination, Dodgers, Harvard background. Dan, where does that leave you thinking about this year's Major League Baseball Playoff. Setting aside any clients you may or may not have still in the race, how are you enjoying the season? How are you thinking about it going into NLCS Game 7 and a pending face-off with the Texas Rangers in the World Series? Well, you can't ask for more than getting two Game 7s in the championship series. Um, maybe we'll get another one in the World Series. And um, obviously being with the Dodgers for a long time, including losing the 2017 World Series, got to admit I was happy with the uh, with the game last night. Um, I think the talk of the anti um, that's a little shot at the Astros, but not, not the typical shot. shot. That's a well-earned personal shot. Having knocked you out in 2017, I always forget that y'all missed that championship because y'all left just before they, they got theirs. Right. 
That's right. And that 2017 season really felt like, you know, as much as any year, it feels like the year, it felt like the year that. That should have been. Yeah. The year that should have been. Um, but you know, one of the things with the themes about the baseball playoffs this year, right. Is that, yeah, nothing's for granted. Like the best teams, um, got kicked out of the first round this year with the, you know, daughters and, and Braves both falling. Um, and so, you know, like there's been a long conversation about whether that's good for the game, whether like we need to change the format, something like that. Um, but you know, like that's might be a fun conversation for the off season, but I'm super excited for the world series matchup. Uh, Obviously, the Rangers have a great team. And then whoever emerges from the NL will be great as well. Mm-hmm. Where are you seeing teams with advantages, analytics-based, player development-based, technological-based advantages? I mean, obviously, it's just one source of edge. Having a great starting pitcher, having a, some of the better hitters in the game, those are huge edges. Where are you seeing teams with edges these days in 2023? Yeah, I think in many ways the the most difficult challenge is, is putting it all together because in order to be a successful baseball team, like you kind of need the stars to align a little bit. Like you can't do it through free agency alone. Um, you can't do it just through player development. Uh, you can get pretty close by having, you know, amazing farm system, amazing prospects, but the teams that have won championships and been the most successful teams in baseball have both spent strategically in free agency and had a great consistent farm system that's delivered top tier prospects. Um, so it's really like the teams that are doing it well are, are needing to execute on multiple, you know, different arms of baseball operations pretty seamlessly and tie that together in a pretty comprehensive, just overall organizational vision and decision-making framework. Um, well, yeah, I mean, like, teams, yeah, go ahead. Well, one follow-up on that. And then I know Eric's trying to get in here, but we, we, we talk about player development and the importance of player development. And we laud teams like the organizations like the Astros for seeming to do that better than a lot of organizations. When you say farm system and free agency, what role is player development playing in those two things? Right? It used to just be identify the best people or pony up and pay the big dollar for the perfect free agent. But how much of it these days is yes, identification, but also, what we can add to that guy or where we think that person can be improved in our system. It's, it really comes into both places. Um, I think the farm system is sort of an obvious home for player development. Um, you know, you have these couple hundred players who are under team control for many years. And so their development just depends entirely on the coaching and the sport and the resources they get. Um, but it's also very relevant for free agency and, and, and player acquisition. You know, oftentimes like, the advantages that the best teams get, it's not because they're signing, you know, like a Bryce Harper, a Machado, a, you know, these, these like really marquee free agents. Those are known commodities, more or less. They're getting, they're getting edges for players who, you know, maybe they have some pitch type that's underutilized. Um, or maybe a team thinks that if they change this guy's grip, they can add an extra, you know, 200 RPMs to his fastball. So uh, it's understanding why players are good, not just like who's good and how good they are. Um, that is giving teams advantages for player acquisition, and that that those that knowledge comes through players um, through player development. Yeah, uh, Dan, I was thinking a lot about baseball analytics last night. I'd love to get your reaction. And really, it's about effect sizes. And here's what I mean: um, last night, the starting pitcher for the Diamondbacks was pitching great. Um, I think he was pulled after I think five or five and two thirds innings, where he had literally just struck out. I don't know. Harper, Bone, and et cetera. Um, Scherzer was pulled after, I think, two and two-thirds innings last night. You know, he had given up two runs, but he certainly wasn't getting shelled. And this is the classic approach now where it's a certain number of times through the lineup or it's, you know, but to me, something we've talked about on Moneyball, and I'd love to get your reaction to it, usually the way I think about it is every pitcher has a bimodal distribution. And when you have evidence that you're getting the good hump, Maybe you should stay with that pitcher a little bit longer. And so how do you think about this trade-off between I've got evidence that this is the good part of the distribution, this particular start versus second time through the lineup? How do you think about that from an analytics perspective? Yeah, I totally agree. You know, the the numbers supporting, you know, platoon advantages, third time through, all that stuff, like they're very much there, but the effect sizes are relatively small. Um and the idea of, you know, a player has this bimodal outcome, you know, they may be dealing in a certain game. I think there's truth to that. That's sort of like, to some extent, underutilized um, within baseball. Now, part of this is just like 
technological barriers. You know, the front office and the clubhouse can't communicate during a game. So it's not like you can have, you know, some analytics team just like looking at Scherzer through the first two innings, running numbers and just like making recommendations. Like it's not quite that simple. Um, you can't have somebody banging a drum or somebody in the outfield <laughs> holding up signs. It's the good hump or something like that. Um, well, this is an idea. homage to homage to the Astros, by the way, but go yeah. ahead. Yeah. Well, that, me, that's me, a championship winning idea for sure. <laughs> let me ask one clarifying question there. You could have somebody assessing in some fine detail, just not technologically assisted how a pitcher is performing, right? If they, if they coded every pitch on some set of dimensions, they can, I, I don't think they can relay. Model. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not sure they can relay that information during the game into the manager. Oh, so it correct? would have to be someone on the bench to be doing these kinds of things. Like, I, th- I think they can obviously prepare for whatever they want ahead of the time, but I, I think there is a restriction on what can actually be communicated real time during the game. Is that right? Yeah, well, certainly if, if the decision rule is as simple as something like velocity, you know, that shows up on the scoreboard. Right. Like everyone knows what the velocity is. And so if it's just like, hey, if Scherzer can hit 95 today, then, then you know, we should we should try and have him face, you know, 25 batters instead of 20 batters. Um, so, you know, you could imagine there being decision rules that are actionable by the coaching staff. Um, I'm not aware of teams that really operate heavily in that space where they're looking at, what is a guy's stuff in game? How is, what is sort of like, wh- which part of this like bimodal distribution is he today as opposed to just in general? Um, because uh, I think there's definitely potential there. Right. So we, our, our buddy Adi is always talking about basically intra pitcher variation as opposed to, we, we just think as casual fans so much about inter pitcher variation. We don't think enough about intra. So that's a minor theme in our show. Um, Fellas, how do you, all three of you all think about going into this game seven? It's so much fun. But in the end, by the time we get to game seven, it feels like you're kind of going out to watch a – this. I don't mean to be flippant, but it, it, does it feel like you're just going to go out and see which way the dice fall this time? I mean, do is there any basis for believing one team really has an advantage going into this game? How do you – I mean, honestly, how do you three think? We're all going to watch the game. Eric's going to go to the game. Shane's decked out in Philly's gear mid-afternoon. How are y'all thinking about this great baseball moment from an analytics perspective? I'll just go first, but fan we care about. I was shocked that the Phillies are minus 185. I mean, I do understand the Diamondbacks had a more runs given, uh, more runs against than they did for this year. I get that. Um, I get that the Phillies are on paper maybe the stronger team. Um, they've played each other six times. They're 3-3. Three, three. Um if there is any, I mean, Shane's waiting for this. If there is any momentum, it goes, this is an inside joke, Dan. If there's any momentum, it goes with the Diamondbacks in this game. Um, we have Ranger Suarez against one of their best pitchers. I just don't see any reason that the uh, the Phillies would necessarily be a 60-plus percent implied odds team. It just seems way out of bounds to me. I think Fangraphs has it about 55% for the Phillies. And... If you were to give them an advantage, I, I think that seems more reasonable to me. But I mean, you know, 55, 45 versus 50. I mean, just call it a coin flip. I mean, why? I, I think, you know, unless you're getting up into the 60, unless you're getting up into the NBA range of like, you know, potential mismatches, just call it a coin flip. Enjoy it for the coin flip it is. I mean, you know, it's it's uh, it's marvelous when it works out. <laughs> Man. Yeah, Shane, I mean, I... Like, I think that's, you know, when you get to a game seven and you played, both these teams have played, what, like 180 baseball games, something like that, if you do the playoffs. You know, it seems crazy that one of them's going home, one of them's staying on. Uh, But that's kind of like the theater and drama of sports, right? Is, you know, you don't play the game on a computer or on a spreadsheet. Like, you go out there and pitch and hit. And, and, um, you know, sometimes the best players in the world strike out. Sometimes, like, you know, things don't go what you expect. And that's that's why we remember and love it. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. Good fun. Good fun. We've got this one tonight and we've got a series in front of us. Hopefully we'll get another seven games out of it. Dan, uh, we're also kicking off NBA tonight. So we've got a new season starting as baseball is wrapping up. Zealous has began in baseball, but they from the beginning talked about expanding into other sports. And and you guys have now moved into basketball. And you did it in an interesting way. You've got um, you, you. My understanding is that you pull in one of our old friends from Phil- speaking of the Phillies, 
one of our old friends, Andrew Galdi, Andy Galdi running from baseball to help build out the basketball platform. Right. So a couple things about that. Uh, how do you think about how, how can you educate us on analytics and basketball these days? So what's the cutting edge with analytics and basketball? But maybe we can get there through a little bit of what you guys are offering. I had a chance to talk to Luke Bourne, one of your fellow co-founders of Zealous, and he said something crazy to me. He said, when you guys started this basketball platform, y'all estimated that it would be 30 man years, 30 person years to develop this thing. And then it took literally three years of development, real calendar time. It's an extraordinary effort. Can you say much about what that platform looks like? What is it you're offering clients in the NBA space for basketball analytics? Yeah, so our, our basketball platform, which I think was the third sport platform that we built out, we had baseball first, soccer came around. Um, you know, you, you know that detail of that really well from a conversational loop. And then um, and then basketball was the third sport we invested in. And uh, the basketball is, is a really good fit for Zealous because the basketball analytics landscape for professional teams has been, um, you know, they've had player tracking data for about a decade. Um, but the way they've used that has been through other vendors that provide the data and build analytics on top of it. And a lot of those metrics are um, just basic augmentations of box score statistics, things like you know effective or probabilistic field goal uh, percentages as opposed to or shot quality metrics, um, different rebounding metrics. There's automatic uh, play detection, which is similar to what a video scout would do. Um, there's not really a lot of work in the um, team side, at least there hasn't been to this date, on using kind of raw player tracking data to generate like foundational player insights. Um, and this was like the kind of perfect opportunity for Zealous to form partnership with NBA clubs because like, you know, my academic background and the work that Luke has done um, is very well suited towards answering these questions about, um, you know, what is the mechanism that generates value or that creates points um, well before a shot even happens. Um, understanding the way in which player emotions and decision makings, uh, you know, influence possession. And that's kind of the layer. Real that's- quickly, Dad, real quickly, I just have to go back to this phrase that Luke used. It was so funny to me. I mean, so precise. The temporal moment of value creation. I think he was talking about, maybe we're talking about cricket or soccer, but this is what you're alluding to again now. And just to name it, Dan worked with Luke back at Harvard, and it's I think of it as spatio-temporal statistics, basically. And it was, a, it was a relatively new field at the time. It's much more sophisticated than traditional statistics. And so that's what you're bringing to this to this sport because space and time is we've got the ability to measure these things in a way we didn't before. Yeah, you know, and when we were doing that work, um, the, the analogy we had for the temporal moment of value creation, right, is like a chess analogy where, you know, if you see like a chess notation or chess game, um, like usually you'll see these moves where it's like pawn C6 and there's like exclamation points after that. And what that means is like this movement of a pawn was like actually like a really awesome move. Um, and because, you know, it doesn't look like much moving a pawn, but, you know, among like world-class chess players, what that means is it sets up a checkmate like eight moves later. Um, And so there's an analog with basketball, right? Where it's not the dunk that is really creating a lot of value for team. It's like the screen that cleared the lane that enabled the guy to dunk the ball. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's Mm -hmm. kind of what, yeah, that's kind of what we've been working on, um, on the basketball side. And it was a really natural complement to teams that had a lot of infrastructure around, um, you know, different data sources, but they weren't answering these really fundamental questions using raw player tracking data. I just, I, 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 I'm hearing this and I'm thinking to myself that it's that, that temporal moment of, of, of value creation, whatever. And 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 you, you brought up the kind of chess, chess kind of example or analogy. And I think of baseball similar to chess and that most of the kind of temporal parts of these, it's still kind of a discrete sort of, you know, like almost instantaneous, you know, most of the value creation in baseball is almost an instantaneous value creation where somebody is like, you know, like hit a home run or something like that, or, you know, throwing the throwing an amazing pitch, et cetera. Whereas obviously in basketball, it's just, it's, it's constantly moving, you know, 10 or 12 different moving parts and you're kind of accumulating like, like the value creations kind of accumulating or whatever in a more continuous way. Do you guys find that? I mean, obviously the modeling of that is more challenging. Is it harder even to kind of think about that or communicate that to people? Yeah. Yeah. It's much more challenging. Um, and honestly, like one of the challenge, most challenging things, right. Is that there's no like, 
you, you know, there, there's no ground truth for what instantaneous value creation looks like. You know, if you think, for example, oh, this screen, this created like 0.13 points, like there's really no way to test that. Um, and so, you know, a lot of what we spend our time doing is not just building these models, but but validating and creating metrics around these that make them actually intelligible and actionable for our partner clubs. What, what, what you're you're talking about doing something that we talk about on the show again? It's a it's a theme for us, and and one phrase we've used is value, you know, uh, conversion versus creation. So historically, counting stats and box scores are about conversion. They're people who are actually putting it in the net, and we've gotten real good. Our kind of first generation of analytics, sports analytics is about understanding the context for that conversion. And we want to give people a little more credit when they do it in difficult context and you want to discount the conversion when they do it in a hard context. But we don't, we, in first generation sports analytics, we didn't talk about anything that created that context. We're always taking it away or adding it to, to condition out the effects that person faced at that moment. But then that robs anybody of any value if they help create the context. So, for example, a defensive back who can handle his wide receiver one-on-one, -on -one, freeing up his other defensive backs to play, you know, doubles or zone or whatever, or the the QB who looks off the defender on the left side of the field so he can get an open guy on the right side of the play. That kind of creation. So, am I right in thinking that that's what you're also talking about here? You're trying to, you're if if the value creation really comes from the creating the context or changing the context, then you want to capture that and call that oh, yeah. the value. Oh yeah, 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 and you know there there are nuggets of this. I think even in box score stats, right? Like in assists, like why do people keep track of assists? Right? There must be this recognition that you right. can have a and pass then, that creates a shot. And take that even further. Why is it that hockey has the double the, the, exactly. the, yeah. the two assists, the assist to the assist? That's some kind of recognition that value creation yeah. starts further up ice or whatever. Eric, hey Dan, I just wanted to follow up on something I thought I heard you said, but I want to make sure for our listeners who are on Moneyball, I heard you right. Let's say uh, Zealous Analytics ingests some data, some interesting data, creates some set of metrics or win probability added or points added, et cetera. How do you validate that? I, did I hear you say that there's no real way to validate it? I'm just trying to understand, like, is there a way to, you know, in some sense, you can compare it to other metrics. But then again, if it's identical, then it's not a useful metric because it's not new. If it's uncorrelated with it, there's probably some loss of face validity because it's got to at least be correlated with some other metrics. How do you guys think about, you know, validating the numbers that come out of some algorithm that you build? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, that's one of the things that we think more about than almost anything else. Um, now, sometimes there is an easy answer. Like some, some things that we do are just predicting like how many home runs the guy hits or like how many games like the Thunder win. Um and for those types of models, like obviously there's a validation pipeline where you can just do out of sample comparisons, things like that, um, compare against public metrics. So that's all very, very easy. Now we do a lot of work where we're trying to quantify things, um, such as let's say the value of a screen in an NBA position. I was just using your example where, of the pawn with the exclamation point, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Well, in that case, like people have chess engines, which are to some extent all knowing, right? And so they use those. Um, and we don't have like a basketball engine, at least not yet. So, the, you know, the process is, um, you know, it's very like manual and labor intensive in addition to quantitative. Like we try and be quantitative as well. We have we have sort of a, a framework, which we call meta analytics um, based on a paper that, that Luke and I and and, um, and uh, Alex Branks and Alex Moore wrote uh, a bunch of years ago, which is a way of doing sort of validation in a space where you don't have a ground truth. So we rely on things like that. We rely on just eye tests. We rely on uh, creating these dashboards where you have like video synchronized with like the predictive metrics and you can sort of like see this frame versus that frame. All of that is to try and build some intuition around whether our design of trying to estimate these things is, you know, matching uh, what we're actually seeing. Dan, what do you anticipate being the first implication of these models, what are they? Are they first about personnel? At what, what point did they become in-game strategy? What, what what do you think are the? I'm sure that some of the consequences you can't even anticipate yet. But what are you thinking are the most immediate consequences of of, of seeing this temp, these temporal moments of value creation better? Yeah, it's a good question. So our thesis with basketball, you know, back when we were thinking about hey, thirty person years, like where does this get you? What are the next twenty person years after that? Where are those getting you? Uh, what we probably imagined is a focus on player projection, 
where what we're doing with these really granular, you know, uh, value creation models is identifying skill among players. And the projection question is more like, how do you then combine the different skills within a player as well as the different collection of players to translate into wins or points or whatever? Um, and so, you know, certainly in a number of sports, like that is the focus, like a focus on projection. Um, in basketball, what we found is that there's just tremendous value in understanding um, and quantifying player actions that that you observe on the court. And this idea of like a, a screen is worth point whatever point, like that has inherent value just by itself, even if you really do nothing with it. Um, there's really an appetite to process, understand, and and kind of just like um, disseminate just how much each action or decision or movement is worth on the court. Okay, I would yeah, be but... happy, by the way, Dan, if you if your results were just a uh, I'll say in a funny way monotone with the truth, like oh, a screen is worth more than this type of rebound. Like I would be thrilled if it just had basic monotone properties. Forget what I'll call like you know, ratio properties like, you know, you, know it's, you estimate it's two to one, but it's really 1.8 to one. I personally can live with that. Okay. So this is, this is a good lead into my question. Eric clearly has an appetite to use your word, Dan, an appetite for, for these insights, but you just said there is an appetite. So just characterize if you can, the appetite across the NBA, the 30 teams and their staffs for the kind of thing you just talked about, just knowing the value of this thing, you said disseminating, the skeptic in me feels like, really? I mean, I can believe there's some appetite. Like, how much appetite is there? How, thir- how thoroughly saturated is the NBA with an appetite for this kind of thing? Yeah, I, I, I'm not like, I think the appetite comes from a different, a couple different places. Um, so I think it's most natural for us to think about the appetite for how does this, um, you know, help the team in terms of like either better tactics to win games on the court or in terms of player acquisition or player development, right? That, that's kind of like our natural instinct. Um, and, you know, I think in order to get there, we probably need to do another step or two. Besides, like, oh, this is worth 0.13 points and take the next step of like, okay, well, who is doing this the most often? Is it 0.13 for everyone or is it more if Giannis is doing this for someone else? Um, where I think the, the more subtle point is that, like, the team environment for many front offices is that they have a coaching staff, they have players, who are very curious to utilize this information and understand this information. And so they want to um, have an, uh, an understanding and a lens to see the game through data um, the same way, you know, they've just seen the game for so many years. Um, and so a lot of like this sort of idea of trying to quantify different things that happen on the basketball court is a reaction towards being supportive of coaching um, players you really want to know that information and are curious about it. Okay. Well, that's, that's, that's very cool to hear. It strikes me also that we've seen appetite among media companies and fans at a broader level. And in fact, even probably this virtuous cycle where as soon as the media picks up more on it, teams eventually, that's a way of influencing teams as well. Dan, one last question before we have to let you go. We have watched you guys from the beginning. We've seen you begin, as you said, with baseball and soccer, now basketball but you've recently received some financing. And as a part of those statements said, we've built out our big sport platforms and we're going to use this next round of financing to move into some new territories. So can, on the way out here, can you tell us where Zealous is going? What we haven't thought about you in working in these, I don't know what, it's probably not Olympic sports, but where are you going next with this next round of financing? Like, for example, could you go into something like hot dog eating as an example? <laughs> oh God, please don't answer that. That was just so. for, yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> If you have a contract in mind, um, we'll certainly take a look at it. But that wasn't <laughs> top of our list. Uh, so, Kate, you mentioned the, the, the sort of six major team sports. So that's baseball, basketball, American football, soccer, cricket, and hockey. Um, at this point, we have operations in all of these sports. We have clients in all these sports. Um, and, you know, what we're looking towards next and what the, the recent funding that we've closed really helps us do this is um, potentially looking at some individual sports. So things like esports, things like golf, possibly tennis, possibly racing. These are areas where there's sort of a, a large enough business for us to operate. There's data and analytics that can help the different actors in these spaces become more successful. 
And in particular, like one thing that's really exciting from a business perspective is that you don't have this like market cap of like there only being 30 teams, there only being 32 teams. Right. And so I think from a growth perspective, that's particularly exciting. Um, and, um, you know, beyond that, I think like one of the theses of Zillow's is that the reason why we're working with pro teams is because this is where, you know, analytics is most advanced and most mature. Um, and so by working with teams, by having access to the best data, by having the best partnerships, we sort of are on the best path towards developing really powerful intellectual property. And so that empowers us to tackle adjacent opportunities that come up that are related to all the sports that we work in, but aren't necessarily involved having a pro team as a client. Okay. So Dan, that sounded very businessy and this is a business station. So that's appropriate. And we were curious about the strategy, all appropriate, but now from a researchy stats, PhD, purely intellectual perspective. And quite personally, it's not Zealous's fault how you answer this question. What are you most interested in? You personally, what sport would you most like to tackle? What are you curious about? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I like what I'm really excited about is, you know, my background in sports research, like really started with the player tracking era. And we're sort of uncovering a new era with um, kinematics and biomechanics. Um, for example, actually, I mean, not a lot of people know this, but this tomorrow night or tonight, actually, uh, NBA opening night will be the very first time that we have in-game basketball biomechanics data being collected. Um, so we're going to start having access to that tomorrow, um, as are all teams. So things like that are extremely exciting from you know the research perspective, because all of a sudden, here we are again, where we have this data source that um, is really complex, is really exciting from a technical perspective, but also from a sports perspective can really change the way we you know, think about that temporal moment of value creation. Right. And new dimensions like player injury and, and health and these other yeah. these yep. obvious things. From that. Well, that's exciting. And I didn't realize that that was going to be uh, begin to be tracked comprehensively tonight. So that's exciting and good to know. Dan, thanks, man. Always good to talk to you. Appreciate you making time for us. Thanks for having me. Dan Travone, Dan is co-founder and principal data scientist at Zealous Analytics. He was the former director of quantitative research for the Dodgers. Before that, he got his PhD in stats at Harvard with those guys back there at the beginning of the spatio-temporal revolution. That has been another episode of Wharton Moneyball. For the whole crew here, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner in absentia, Matty Dats, the boss man, Dion Simpkins, the associate boss man. Appreciate y'all listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.